When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, folks. Thanks for listening to the Abandoned America podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Christopher. 2023 has been a pretty wild year for me. I survived the first year in my new home, my wife got a new job, and I finished up the second season of this podcast. Speaking of that last one, I put out 15 new episodes in 2023, with stories ranging from the discovery and rehabilitation of a lost garden by a significant landscape architect, to the story of the abandoned Six Flags amusement park in New Orleans, with both shorter narratives telling stories like the rise and fall of Gary, Indiana, to longer interviews with some accomplished and fascinating people. In total, episodes of the podcast have been played over 85,000 times, and you know what? I feel pretty good about all of that. I want to take a moment to thank the guests who have taken the time to interview with me. I want to thank the people who have supported the podcast on Patreon or by buying prints or books this year and thus helped me to make it possible. And I want to thank all of you who have set aside a bit of time out of your day to listen in. I'm deeply grateful. Before the rest of the episode, I just want to do a quick bit of housekeeping before introducing my guest. This will be the last full episode of the second season, then I'm going to take a break and edit the next season's episodes, which will be posted as they're completed on my Patreon and on platforms like Spotify and all the other ones in a six or eight episode block, hopefully starting in April. To end the season, I took a look back at the stories I told in 2023, and (laughs) let's be honest, a lot of them are pretty grim. I had a heartbreaking interview with a conscientious young man who found himself thrust into the role of a preservation activist trying to save his neighborhood church, but it was destroyed anyway despite the efforts of the community to prevent it. I did deep dives into the lost neighborhoods of Long Beach and Lincoln Way, and of course the story of Forest Haven, which was, quite frankly, one of the most upsetting and disturbing research projects that I've ever come across, and I've spent a lot of time researching upsetting and disturbing places. So, to wrap up the season and the end of the year, I wanted to end with an episode about something that makes me happy. In this case, that's the story of a local historian and preservation advocate who has spent well over a decade fighting an uphill battle to restore an abandoned theater, and after a lot of difficulties and setbacks, they're finally at the stage where construction is underway and the theater is going to reopen next year. It's an amazing and joyful thing to me to see a neglected but otherwise gorgeous and historic building being brought back to life as the centerpiece of its community. That's a story that I wish I saw more of, and if you're in preservation circles, you know what a rare and miraculous occurrence it is. 
The historian, the one who fought to restore the abandoned theater, is Matt Schultz, the executive director of the Historic Lansdowne Theater Corporation, a nonprofit dedicated to saving the Lansdowne Theater, a beautiful building in the heart of Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. I've known Matt for a long time. I held photo workshops at the theater several times a year for almost a decade. And over that period, I really gained a deep appreciation for how hardworking, smart, and honest he is. While no huge task is completed by one person, and the Lansdowne Theater has had the backing of donors, volunteers, elected representatives, and its board, I don't think anyone could deny that Matt Schultz has been the backbone of the project, and it's hard to imagine any of the restoration work happening without him. Today, I'll be interviewing Matt about the progress they've made, and how he pulled off what is, in my humble estimation, an incredibly impressive turnaround for an awesome abandoned place that otherwise might have been lost forever. Matt, I am very excited to have you with me here today because I have been coming to the Lansdowne for, I mean, what would it be? It's its probably been a solid decade now, at least. And I just am so impressed by the progress that you've made, the work that you've done, how you've managed to rally together so many people to work on this building. It's really an honor, and I'm, I'm happy to have a happy story to share with people, too. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, Matthew, I'm glad to join you. And I, I'd like to start off by saying that Abandoned America was really an important partner in what we're doing at the Lansdowne. Um, you came along at a, at a point where we were scrambling for operating money just to keep the project moving forward. And the workshops that you held at the theater provide some crucial income that really allowed us to stay in the game and to get where we are right now, which we've we've started the construction back in August and we're expecting it to be completed. We're going to reopen in the fall of 2024. Um, and also, I want to say all the, the photographers that came out for those visits at the Lansdowne really helped me personally keep my excitement about the building. I'm the only staff person, so I spend an awful lot of time alone. And having a building that large in the condition that it's in and the challenge around fundraising really was frustrating at, at times. But when you would bring those groups of people in and they would be so enthusiastic about the building, and then at the end, they would share the photos with me. It was so exciting to see other people's take on the building that it really helped to, to keep me engaged and to be excited about it. And then the fact that some of the photographers allowed us to use those photos in our different materials, website and solicitations and things like that was really very helpful. And Abandoned America was a very important component, again, as to why how we got to where we are today, which is construction. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm honored. Thank you so much. And and I mean I, I was honored when to have the opportunity to do it. That was relatively early on when I was doing the photo workshops. And I remember that I had lived in Lansdowne for a brief period, and I was always fascinated with the theater. I mean, you know, it's me, so of course that's going to be the thing. The the cool historic building that isn't open is going to be the thing I'm immediately drawn to. But um, that was just so exciting, and there were I, I feel like so many talented people coming through and taking pictures of it that I too appreciate what you were talking about, which is looking at how different people process things and how mm -hmm. they interpret it. Because I'm a very literal documentary style photographer, very much like the kind of straight architectural shooting. And then you have people that are coming in with like fish eyes or uh, Ronnie laying on the floor, shooting up at the ceiling, or you know what I mean? Like you just had so many people that had so many different ways of viewing it that it's really a lot of fun to see it through what catches their attention and what features they really like about it. 
Sure. And, and every once in a while, I, I'd see something in someone else's photograph that I didn't even realize was there. Yeah. It was, there was really a lot of fun to, to do it because I thought, I thought I knew the building better than anyone, but that was not the case. I mean, I would see these, uh, see these angels pop out of the paintings on the, uh, the painting on the ceiling or some three-dimensional piece around the building that maybe I hadn't paid attention to. So it was great working with you and, and all of the photographers that came through. It really was. Thank you so much. And as far as those details, the Save the Lansdowne Theater Facebook page, you've been sharing a lot of like uh, the construction updates and some of those little details. And I, and I want to get to them. I guess my first thing that uh, I wanted to ask you about, and this is something that I, I throw out at a lot of people that are working with historic buildings, like what is it that makes this building special? The building opened in 1927 as a single screen movie house and then operated for four or five years ago as a silent movie house. But then they started showing talkies in the early 30s there and then operated until 1987. So I think that those kinds of places where there's a lot of informal social interaction, in other words, you don't necessarily plan to meet people there, but you run across people there. They tend to conjure up these spontaneous memories that people collect throughout their lives. And I think the Lansdowne Theater was one of those places where people remember going on their first date or they saw a particular movie there. They were scared after they saw The Exorcist and ran home and hid under their bed. They're memories that really sort of shape us. And I think there was that piece that certainly is not unique to the land to the Lansdowne. It has to, you know, a lot of theaters can, can claim that. And a lot of historic buildings can claim that effect on people. But Lansdowne's a small community. It's only a mile square, roughly uh, 11,000 residents. And there's an awful lot of social interaction because it is such a small town. So those gathering spots were really important. And then when the theater closed in 87, that informal social interaction went away. And I think people really missed that. And the people who came to, who moved to town or came to town after the theater closed down, they were just intrigued by this enormous building in the center of Lansdowne that originally held over 1,300 patrons. It's a, it's a you know large building for a small town, and it's certainly the largest building in the business district. And since it closed in 87, other than when we, Historic Lansdowne Theater Corporation, got it and redid the retail spaces and the offices upstairs, there wasn't a whole lot of activity. So it was largely a mystery as to what was going on in the building. So I think there was that intrigue there, too. When you talk about the theater, I mean, it's it's kind of a unique building, even among theaters, right? It's got that kind of the Moorish influence on the design. And I know that the guy who designed it, Lee, if I'm remembering correctly, is that right? William H. Lee, yeah. Yeah. So he had designed theaters as far as Hawaii. And how would you say the design of the Lansdowne is unique? It, it, he sort of confused us. There's there's a lot written about the design of the building and, and how you would label it. And there's the school of thought that it's Moorish, uh, but there's the school of thought that it's got a little bit of Spanish revival in it. But then there's the school of thought there's a little bit of the Renaissance in it. And what I personally sort of landed on, and this actually came from the wife of one of the architects who, who visited the theater. And she said that it was a Hollywood fantasy that if you could picture a building being built in the 1920s of Hollywood and picked up and brought to the small town out just outside of Philadelphia, that's really what you have. And I think, I think she's right. I think it was, a, it was a mix of a few things. We did uh, track down Mr. Lee's granddaughter who lived nearby. And she said that her grandparents would often go to uh, 
Europe and North Africa. And the grandfather would just spend time sketching building elements from where they were visiting. And I think it almost seems like at the Lansdowne, he brought back these drawings from multiple different spaces that he went to and incorporated them all in the Lansdowne. So I'll go with the Hollywood fantasy description and and not try to pin it down to you know a neat description because I don't think it really fits there. But I think what's interesting about the Lansdowne in terms of its design was there there was a the daytime activity, which was in originally four retail spaces on the first floor, and there were 12 offices up on the second floor. And those they were deliberately separate from the theater. So during the day, those offices and the retail spaces would be active. And around seven o'clock at night, the theater would open up and the theater would be active at night. And the two really never met. And then the fact that the building was protected to some extent from the community is really interesting. Whenever someone would come up with a, with an idea to reuse the building, someone wanted to use it as an electrical supply house, and the community fought back on that. Uh, someone else wanted to create an antique market in there, and the community fought back on that. They always banded together because they wanted to see the building return to a place of public entertainment. And while the movie industry has changed and the exhibition of films has changed so much, uh, you, know, you can watch a film on your phone, your computer, or stream first-round movies on your computer now, that makes it a really difficult industry to break into. And we've got a great movie house, not probably about uh, 10 minutes away, the Bryn Mawr Film Institute, which is another great historic building. They do a great job. So when we bought the Lansdowne, we knew that we couldn't go into that realm because we just would not be competitive. And we didn't want to divide the theater up. So we basically had, you know, Typically, what they would have done in the 70s is come in and divide the theater into thirds and do something. Well, we didn't want to do that because there was a single auditorium was intact with all its architectural details, a lot of its historic finishes. We really wanted to come up with a reuse of the space that would allow us to keep those historic elements in place, keep the volume of the auditorium intact. And what we landed on was converting the building into a, uh, to a concert hall. So we're very excited because from an architectural standpoint, we can honor the building with uh, some minor changes because there are safety issues and functional issues. But we can really honor the 1927 building, but make it financially viable, safe, efficient, and uh, really a unique space by converting it to a concert hall. Well, I think it'll be amazing for that because the acoustics were something that everybody was always struck by (laughs) when they came in. I I feel like there's that, that moment when you... When you realize how sound carries in there, it's a little bit of, of wonder at how the space does that. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. So when the theater, the theater opened in 1927, it, it closed in 1986, correct? Uh, 87. I'm sorry, you didn't mention that. Yeah. So it closed in 1987. And that was during a screening of Beverly Hills Cop 2. And there was a fire in the basement. Um, I guess where there's smoke, there's fire, the um, electric lines that come in into the basement through one of the retail spaces. And there was smoke coming out of that wiring. And the the movie projectors continue to operate. And people didn't know that there was this fire, the smoke in the building until the fire trucks came. And the firemen came in and, and rushed everyone out. So the, the fi- if there was a fire, if there was smoke, but if there was a fire, it was contained to this one area in a basement in the retail space. And you have to remember that the Lansdowne Theater was built at a time where they used nitrate-based film. So they're very much afraid of fire in buildings. 
Sure. So the building was, uh, it, you couldn't burn that building down if you tried because everything from the floor to the roof, including the decking under the roof, is concrete, brick, terracotta, or steel. So there's really nothing in the building to burn. So that fire in the basement was really contained uh, in that one room and, and did not do major physical damage to the building, but it did damage the business uh, plan of the owner at the time. And he basically walked away from the building. Well, that's kind of the thing that I had wanted to get to in this question is because it wasn't a large fire, if if, if it even was, and uh, because of the fact that it's not like there's really, you know, you can see damage done by it or anything like that. It just strikes me as very weird that that particular thing was the thing that where he was just like, okay, I'm done. I mean, do you, do you know anything more about why it was that that was kind of the final straw? Well, I think a lot of the things that they really had to deal with that they, that they should have dealt with back then, we're having to deal with now, which we're ripping out the entire electrical system in the entire building because it's from 1927 and it just, you know, just through deterioration or, um, just the demands on the electrical system, particularly when you're converting from a movie exhibition to a concert hall, we have to redo that. And I think maybe that drove home the notion that this, he was in over his head on this building and it needed, they, they did superficial things. And some of the things we, we have to undo, like they, they repainted the ceiling because it's something that's noticeable. But unfortunately they went out to the local paint store and just bought house paint and painted the ceiling. So, um, oh no, they, yeah, they covered up a lot of detail, and there's some original detail left. And then we will recreate the original detail that was up on the ceiling and the walls and things like that. So they were focused on just doing aesthetic things. The plumbing didn't work in the building at the time. Like I said the electrical system didn't work at the building at the time. The HVAC system was the system from the 1927, and it just it didn't. You needed. The building's long been a white elephant, uh, and you needed a lot of money to really do the building right, to get to, again, make it safe, efficient, and function, and, and be beautiful. You needed a lot of money to be able to do that. And I think what happened was he was trying to, you know, it was an individual doing it. I think he had some partners, but they were trying to do it as inexpensively as possible. And um, it's, you know, it was still a dollar movie house. So how much is if it's a dollar movie? If you buy a building from 1927, you buy it in the 1980s. It's in bad shape. Your ticket sales are a dollar ahead. How much can you really afford to invest in the building? And I think he finally figured that out and and walked away from it. Oh, well, that makes sense. So between then and when you came on the scene, it was just out of use. What happened was the uh, after the owner during the fire when he walked away, and then the bank that held the mortgage on it. It was a savings and loan, and it was involved in a savings and loan crisis. Um, so they went out of business, the savings and loan itself, and then it was taken over by the federal uh, agency, the Resolution Trust Corporation, and then they sold it to a group of business people who I, th I think that they wanted to reopen the theater, but again, I think they maybe didn't understand the magnitude of the issues in the building. So they held on to it. They redid uh, the retail spaces, redid the office spaces, rented those portions out. But the, the auditorium, which was always everyone's interest, was to be able to see live entertainment in the auditorium, still sat vacant until we bought the building in, in 2007. So almost 
I guess almost 20 years. There was not, not much going on in the auditorium at all. I, I think people kept estimating, uh, underestimating the cost to redo the building and underestimating the, the issues that were there. How did you come onto the scene then? Like, how, how did you get roped into this? What, what was the thing that made you see this and think, this is a project for me? Because it was quite a project. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of things that, that came together. Um, one, I had grown up in Lansdowne and I actually went to the theater as a kid. I had a father who was a history teacher. And every summer we were always taken to different historic sites up and down the eastern seaboard. And I got very interested in history, then got very interested in local history, and then trying to figure out how I fit into like the history of the town as a teenager. Because we all play, regardless of who we are, we all play a part in the history of our communities, our neighborhoods, our communities, our towns that we live in, whether we think we do or not. So I was trying to figure that out, fell in love with Lansdowne, went to college to become an urban planner, came out of college, got a job in preservation. And then when I came out of college, actually during college, I started getting involved in preservation projects as a volunteer in Lansdowne, got out of college, worked, started a preservation organization in Philadelphia, but then did volunteer projects in town here and created an historic district, saved a 400-year-old sycamore tree, which is now the centerpiece of a public park, uh, led the campaign to restore a Frank Furness Pennsylvania Railroad Station that had partially burned, led the campaign to restore the Lansdowne World War Monument and the Lansdowne World War II Memorial, wrote a book about the town, did a documentary about the town, and people kept looking like, what's his next project going to be? And people bugged me for years about the movie theater because people rightly so, saw this huge building as in the theater in the center of the business district as being a great opportunity to revitalize the central business district because Lansdowne, just like so many other historic communities, had gone through that period where people stopped going to central business districts and going to malls. And then, but the theater got hit with uh, uh, blockbuster video coming out and the changing technologies of film exhibition. So all that sort of rolled up was really um, it created a moribund central business district, but it, and that's always the front door in communities or central business districts. So I was sniffing around trying to figure out what to do about um, the theater and um, I had multiple conversations with a gentleman who was a member of the House of Representatives in, in Harrisburg. And we became uh, good friends and, and close partners on a lot of the projects that I mentioned. And um, late one night, we, we talked about the theater and I had talked about the challenges and he understood them. Late one night, maybe 11 o'clock at night, he called me on the phone, woke me up and said, I can get a million dollars for the movie theater. Do you want to do the project? And I sort of mumbled, yes, I was half asleep. And then <laughs> I called him the next morning and I said, did you call me last night and say that you could get a million dollars to do the theater project? And he said, you get a lot of people who call you at night and offer you a million dollars. And I said, no, I said, you're the only one. And he said, yeah, I, I, I think the theater is really the key to the revitalization of the central business district. And I think it's important that you take the lead on this. So um, that's sort of how it all started. And I was do I was, I had my career. I was doing other things. I was an executive at uh, the, for the Temple University Health System um, at the time, and um, he also got us money to do two other projects in town. So we did those two other projects in town 
before we came back to the theater. And then when we went back to the theater, we realized that we needed to create uh, an entity, a corporation that would take over the project, that that would be its only responsibility. So then we we created the Historic Queenstown Theater Corporation in 2006, and then we bought the building in 2007. And that million dollars helped us to buy the building. I shouldn't say helped us, enabled us to buy the building. And then we started to do some planning as to how, what was the condition of the building uh, and realistically what, you know, what were the costs around it and uh, put together some initial steps on moving forward. And we brought in some consultants and some consultants had some ideas that um, we, as the board of directors, just didn't think were going to work. And we, um, we sort of dismissed it and then dismissed the consultants. And then we put up a landing page on the, on the internet and uh, just with, uh, put a phone. we established a phone number and email address, put that up, and within a week, we get a call from an independent concert promoter uh, in the Philadelphia region who, it turns out, had looked at the theater years before and very badly wanted to move into the theater and wanted to program it with concerts. Um, and I, he called me and I brought him over. I said, you know, we've got a lot of work to do here before we can do it. And he said, well, I want to be your tenant. So that's how it all started. And that's what you have to keep in mind with historic buildings is there has to be a viable financial reuse for them. And you have to be, there have to be a number of people who stick their necks out. You know, whether it's sticking their necks out to create and run a nonprofit to pull the whole thing together, or a tenant who brings a certain set of skills to the table that's going to allow the building to be reused and be financially viable, not only for the nonprofit that owns the building. But he is a tenant. He's got to be able to make a living. He's not a nonprofit. He's looking to make a profit. So there has to be a lot of pieces that come together. And then once you have that basic, those basic players, then you can start to look at, go back and revisit costs based on what the tenant needs. And then what is the, um, how are you going to come up with those funds? And that was really a, a challenge for many, many years. I mean, it took us well over a decade to raise the money that's needed to restore this building. But what I found out, and it is a long time, but what I found out from um, talking to some of the, the uh, subcontractors, especially subcontractors that we're bringing in, that we're really sort of ahead of the schedule on a project like this. That usually take what you know another decade to get together because contrary to what people believe, there are not people out there uh, sitting with uh, their checkbook in hand waiting to fund the restoration of old movie theaters. It is a challenge. It is a, you got to work like a dog to get it done and to turn over, you know, every stone, talk to every person who will talk to you to come up with the money and, sh and share that vision. But we were lucky, again, that this concert promoter came forward and helped us to decide on how we were going to reuse the building. I think you folks had a lot of good luck and and certainly, and I'm not saying this just because I'm talking to you, but I think getting you involved was kind of the master stroke there because you have a kind of the hard work and dedication, but also the savvy to figure out how to make a thing like this actually work, which I mean, having met many a person with many a plan for historic buildings, getting those things to align properly, like, you, you know, you might have somebody that is incredibly passionate about a building and very hardworking, but just has no idea how to, how to make it work. Or, you know, it could be the other way around. I also wanted to mention real quick, when you were talking about your work and uh, the documentary that you did, when I moved to Lansdowne, my 
then girlfriend, now wife, Olivia. That was the housewarming gift she got me was your documentary on it. Isn't it? And that was the first thing I watched in my my new apartment there. So it was kind of like when I met you, I was like, this is amazing. But was there a point then where you originally got the building? You get this call at night, which must have been very surreal. Was there a point after that where you're like the, the buzz wears off a little and you're like, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? Most definitely. I mean, there is definitely because I didn't I'd spent a lot of time in my career raising money throughout the Philadelphia region for various projects. And so I had a pretty good idea who were the likely funders. I didn't see a whole lot of interest amongst those funders in suburban communities. There was always been a lack of interest in amongst foundations and from people who are not in the historic preservation world in defunding historic preservation because I don't think they completely understand it. And to even complicate it even more, um, I I don't think there's a whole lot of philanthropists, unless you can find someone from the town that you're trying to do the economic development in, that they're particularly interested in funding economic development. Not from the private sector. It doesn't, you know, it can work, but you have to you have to tweet the project and you know talk about instead of, you know, you're doing this for economic reasons, but you're you're also increasing access to the arts for the people in this particular geographic area. So you can't you have to figure out what your story is, and you're you have to have a quiver of stories. You can't just have one story because a funder may be interested in preservation. The funder may be interested in theaters. They may be interested in music. They may, you know, whatever, uh, they may be interested in education. Uh, you have to figure out what your story is and match it up to the funder and hopefully you can get them on board. But that that takes a while and um, it, it, it is a real challenge. And it, there were many frustrating times for me in the theater and thinking, what is going to be our next turn? But one of the things that I knew from day one was that while we had great board of directors and while I came to the project with a lot of uh, experience and, and skills, we didn't have a, a full team. And what I spent a long time doing was building out a team, building out a team of the right consultants, building out a, a team of the right volunteers, and then building a team of elected officials who would support you because at the end of the day, that's where most of the funding came for the project was through the public sector. So it really is about teamwork. It's about uh, being respectful of each other, finding the right funders and getting them to, to buy into this dream that not only I had, but the whole town had. And you, one of the things that was really interesting was I think people, when we started this, they sort of looked at it as Mickey Rooney and, and let's put on a show. And that's not what we were. We weren't theater people. We were people that were committed to the community. We were, we saw this real estate asset as something that could serve the purposes of the local school districts, economic development, community development. So it was more than just let's put on a show. And I and I think that my guess is that funders get it approached by a lot of people who have these buildings that are just that. Let's put on a show. And that's not where we were coming from. And that's why we made what I think was the best decision we made, which was to find a tenant who his expertise would actually bring, would, would program the space with arts that would be popular. And again, make the nonprofit viable, but also make him not only viable, but turn a profit. Because um, 
you know, sometimes you can't take all the money off the table. You have to bring in partners and, and give them opportunities. And the nonprofit is not driven by profit, but it is driven by covering its own bills. So that's why why we did that. And I think that's what was crucial was building that team. Thanks, Matt. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we are back. Matt, you touched on this, but you have a lot of support, it seems like, from Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon and Senator Bob Casey. How did that how did that happen? Like, how did you get them on board with that? One of the funding opportunities that I had pursued early on was trying to get a federal earmark um, from then Senator Specter, and then there was another U.S. Representative, Joe Sestak. We, we got on Joe Sestak's list for a recommended federal earmark, and we got all the way down to the end, and the House voted to not do any more earmarks. So, you know, you, we spent a year working on that. We're ready, to, you know, they're ready to announce, and then they pull the rug out from underneath them. So. We we lost that opportunity, but when Miss Scanlon was elected, I immediately called her office and just invited her to come out. And just we got this great theater. We're trying to restore it. This is why we're doing it. It's community community redevelopment. It's economic development. Access to the arts. All, all these things. Just come and take a look. Just want to meet you. So she came out, and we talked. I, she talked about this, and I talked about this at the groundbreaking this past July. As soon as she stepped in the building, she said, "You know, this would be perfect for a federal earmark." And I said, "We don't have to meet that. If that's your take, well, that's the reason I wanted you to be here." And we had a great <laughs> laugh about it. And she walked through and loved the building. And she always kept us in mind. And she actually worked with us to try to identify some other sources of federal funding. Funding, and we we're not able to come up with anything until the House decided to do. They're no longer called federal earmarks; it's community project funding. They decided to do community project funding when Joe Biden came back in the office. And she immediately put us in as a recommended project. And then Bob Casey put us in on the Senate side, but the Senate decided that they didn't want to fund any projects with this community project funding money that had to do with the arts. So Senator Casey partnered up with uh, Representative Scanlon, and they really pushed for a million and a half dollars for the project. So it was really a lot of teamwork between the two of them that helped us to do that. And I think when that happened, then actually that built on the state's earlier money. But then when the senator came in, the representative came in, I think the county, Delaware County Council looked at us in a more serious way. And then we were able to double back to the Commonwealth and get additional money from them. So you could see and it was it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. You could see the momentum. People were beginning to believe that this was for real. And it just took a long time to get people to, to recognize this. So we ended up at the end of the day, we got the borough of Lansdowne. They forgave a portion of the permit fees, which were significant in the project. County Council, they put in a significant amount of money. Then we got a significant amount of money from the House of Representatives in Harrisburg, from the Senate in Harrisburg, and then this federal money. So we ended up, we ran the gamut from local, local government all the way up to the federal government. And they really helped us to put together the core of the funding base. But then we got some incredible support from the Presser Foundation, which is the Presser Foundation is named in honor of Theodore Presser, who was a music publisher who left his estate to fund music-related projects. Uh, I think Mr. Presser died probably 80 years ago, and they were very rigorous in, in you know, asking questions and what we were going to do. And, all that. and there were other foundations that came in. The Foundation for Delaware County supported us. So it was a matter of, I think, 
people sort of looked around and, and saw that there were other people that were jumping on board and they felt safe. They felt safer that they saw other people investing. So they stepped up, but it took a while to get people to believe that we could really put everything together. And then we also, you know, we part, a portion of the project was financed through the reinvestment fund in Philadelphia and WSFS Bank. Now, WSFS Bank, in addition to making the loan to us, actually invested in the project through the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program, which was really interesting. So they we created a structure which they can use tax credits and they invest in the project. It's, it's really very complicated. But it was really a group of a lot of entities coming together and saying, this is really a good project. And... Um, we want to see this happen, and we're going to work together to make sure that it happened. And we had a particular consultant, a guy named Asan Masratula, who really helped to guide us, who was just phenomenal and saw things that my board didn't see and certainly I didn't see. And uh, it goes back to the idea you pull together a team and everyone brings their own perspective. And uh, we pulled together a great team. This is an $18 million restoration project, correct? It, it is um, about about fourteen million is actual. No, about fifteen million is actual construction. So there's three million in financing fees and and legal fees and all that kind of stuff. And there was a point where uh, I was reading that there was like a one and a half million shortfall because of the fact that inflation had changed the original estimates. Yes. Uh, what was that we, like? Uh, we were ready. We were ready to go to settlement so the banks said go back out get an updated budget from the contract and we were right in the throes of the when inflation really started to hit uh last year or a year and a half ago and supply chain was all messed up so we came back and we were a million and a, half, a million short so i'm just like how are we going to do this so i went back to delaware county council and they came they sort of looked at me and then I said, oh, we just, you know, we're all facing inflation. And they said, we understand, we'll see what we can do. So they came, they made a significant commitment. And then we went back to the Commonwealth and said, look, we, you know, through uh, State Senator Tim Carney and uh, State Representative Gina Curry and said, you know, we have a shortfall here. Is there anything the Commonwealth can do? And they said, yeah, we can, we can help with that. And then we went to the borough and we had calculated the borough construction permit fees in our budget. So we went and said, look, we're, we, our gap is a million. We think that we've gotten uh, $850,000 spoken for. Can you forgive $150,000 of the permit fees? And they immediately said yes. So in a matter of three days, we raised a million dollars. That's incredible. I mean, your perseverance with this is pretty legendary, I think. What was the what was the selling point like? What do you feel? How do you feel that this will improve the community when it's finished? I mean, obviously, I have my feelings about that. But like when you tell people this is what it's going to bring aside from music and the arts back into the community, how does that improve the rest of the community having an active music venue like that? The biggest thing is that you're going to have a new, you know, not every town has, we're going to end up with 1,280 seats in the build, in the in the theater. Not every town has a 1,280 seat music venue in it. You know, Lansdowne's very lucky to have that building because it can serve as the anchor building for the central business district and act as a, as a major attraction for people to come from throughout the region 
to see their favorite musician who might be playing at the Lansdowne. So looking at the numbers, talking to our tenant and talking about the way that the nonprofit retains some dates in the calendar to be able to lease them out to nonprofit groups in the area to use the space. But we figure we'll probably in the next two to three years build up to 100,000 patrons annually. So those 100,000 patrons coming to Lansdowne annually whether they're coming in cars, trains, Ubers, whatever, they may want to come to town and have dinner somewhere. So we now create a marketplace where there's actually people there that can buy those goods and those services in the business district. So what I'm talking about are, you know, whether restaurants or other businesses that will see these 100,000 people coming to the town as an opportunity for them to make money. Because again, we wanted to preserve the building. We wanted to make the arts accessible, but it was really about creating a an engine to drive the local economy in that, that business district. Because there's 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 a couple businesses down there that are destination businesses right now. Like there's having Joe Tadero has a great music shop, so people will travel from outside of town to go to Joe's music store because he's got something unique. There's a place called Jamie's House of Music, which is a jazz and, and blues clubs. So people travel from outside town to go there. But the main street has you know, your usual dry cleaners and little shops that sell locally. So their market is small. What we're trying to do is create a much larger market where we can attract people from outside of town and provide opportunities for people to open up businesses there that will serve those people and make money. Nothing goes back to the theater. But it's our reason for being, which was to preserve the theater and to create this engine for the business district. So that's the economic piece. The community piece is those carve-out dates that we have in the lease that we can have nonprofit groups use the space for a reduced rent. We hope to bring in local arts groups or school groups to use that so that aspiring performers can perform on the stage in, in this really unique space on the, on the stage. The other thing that it does is, and municipalities are always looking for this, we're in significantly increasing the value of the building. So the taxes that the building will generate for the borough of land center for the school district will be significant. But then same thing happens. If other people invest in those buildings around us, they will be eventually paying higher taxes because they'll be making more money and so on and so on. So, so from the taxing standpoint, it makes sense. And then there's maybe something that's a little bit less quantifiable. It's that, that sense of pride in place. There are a couple of smaller theaters around the Philadelphia area. And when you mention those theaters, I immediately and other people immediately get a picture of the neighborhoods around these theaters. And they the neighborhoods are nice around those theaters. And I think that that's, Lansdowne's a really interesting and unique place with its collection of historic buildings and walkable, the walkable community and got an incredible collection of trees in this town and parks and things. So I think it'll bring people into the town. And I think people who live here feel better about the town because people want to come here. But also, maybe some of those concert patrons want to buy real estate here. So you expand the real estate market. So there's lots of ways that this can impact the community in a positive way, all while preserving a landmark that people love. I mean, it's a pretty good now, for the local community, it's it's really pretty incredible. It doesn't fix all the ills of the community, but it does help with a lot of things. Well, I have to ask, it, I'm sure you've thought about this. If you had to pick from one musician 
that you would love to see personally? I mean, not one that's going to like, you know, Taylor, Taylor Swift is going to come and the theater will be financially set forever if she did like a benefit concert, but somebody that you personally would look forward to hearing perform at the Lansdowne, who would it be? There's a lot. It's, it's funny. I don't, the Lansdowne theater is within a couple miles of the old tower theater, which is in upper Darby, which was legendary because that's where David Bowie, that was where the first, I believe it was the first live concert made into a record album. And it was oh. recorded at the Tower. And that's what was so significant about the Tower. But for years and years, they brought in some incredible acts. And as a teenager, I would get to go over to see those acts. And I had a good friend who was a music nut, and we would go over and we got to see Daryl Hall and John Oates. And we, uh, one of my favorites who's still performing is a guy named Al Stewart. And we saw a lot, you know, a lot of those groups, I guess, from the 70s and early 80s. And I would love to see those groups come back. But it's interesting to see because a lot of those guys are, you know, they're not on the road anymore or they're they're not with us any longer. So there's people that are coming behind them. And it's interesting to explore those musicians, too. So I I trust the concert promoter who's coming here. I know he's been in the business a long time, knows what he's doing. I think he's going to bring a lot of great acts here that people will enjoy. And I know that I'll enjoy a lot of them too. So I don't necessarily other than Al Stewart, who I've seen, how many times have I seen Al Stewart? 10 times. I'd love to see him at the Lansdowne, but I'd love to see Derek Trucks, the Indigo Girls. There's a lot of different people I'd love to see at the Lansdowne. And that's the thing. I can't wait to drive down Lansdowne Avenue and see the name of one of these artists that I've admired and listened to up on the Lansdowne's marquee. That's going to really be incredible when that happens. And you're still about a little under a year off from the reopening. What do you see yourself doing after that? There's some discussion that I'll still be involved in the theater in a different way. We'll see. We'll see. I've gotten people have contacted me about doing other theaters. I'm not sure that I want to do that, but there are other opportunities that people have come forward with me. So when the time comes, I'll look at those things, but the Lansdowne will always have a place in my heart and, uh, I hope to be involved for beyond this next year, beyond construction, but uh, we'll see. Will you at least go and take like a two week tropical vacation or something <laughs> like that? Like do a victory dance or something. I mean, that's going to be momentous. Yeah, it will be a moment. Um, you know, I, I, I do have to point out too, and this was the, that, that team that I keep talking about the team, um, includes my wife who we agreed that I would do this project and it took longer than we thought. So I give her a lot of credit for hanging in there with me and with the project. But um, we, we, we sort of daydream about we wanted what we want to do. And I think doing the project in and of itself is really the reward. I don't need to go to a tropic beach. I'd rather spend it in, in um, musty old buildings, to be honest with you, than sitting on a beach. Um, it, it's <laughs> that's, hard to that's believe. me as well. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my 60s now and I'm thinking about winding it down and I'm just, I'm raring to go. So we'll see, but I won't be sitting on any beaches anywhere. Well, what would you, if you were talking to somebody else who is looking at getting into restoration of let's, let's make it easy and say uh, an abandoned theater, what advice would you give to them? Really come at it from a business perspective while I'll admit, I love the Landstamp Theater. For a long time, I really did look at it for years, actually, before we bought the building. I looked at it and I thought, you know, I don't know that there's a future for this building. I just don't see where the money's going to come from. I don't see 
who the user is going to be. You know, you really have to take a hard look at those questions and not try to convince yourself of anything that's not real because it's not easy. And you're going to have to put in a lot of time. You're going to have to go beyond your comfort zone to ask a lot of people for favors, money, you know, help us move forward, you know, all kind, just endless things. But again, coming at it from a business perspective, don't come at it. The arts are great, but that's not really what at the end of the day is going to directly put together, help you to put together the money to do the project. It's all it's all inter- intermingled, but you have to demonstrate that there's you're a business person because people, you know, philanthropists, whether they're individuals sending you $100 or someone giving you, you know, 100000 or elected officials giving you public money, they need to know that you're going to use the money appropriately. You'll be accountable and you'll use their money wisely and efficiently. And that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for your grand vision of how you're going to save the world through the arts. They want to make sure their money's well spent, protected, and it's going to serve the public good. That's what you have to really focus on. You can have the greatest building, and I've seen it over and over again, and it's really sad. You have the greatest building in a community that you know doesn't have a large population around it, and you're, you're sort of isolated. So it's hard to figure out from a commercial standpoint, how are you going to revitalize that building and make it financially viable? That's a real challenge, and not... Unfortunately, um, you know, we lose a lot of buildings because of that reason. So it's really sort of understanding economics, financing, the community you're operating in, and the business that uh, either your organization or, in our, like in our case, our tenant, either you either know that business or you don't know the business. If you don't know the business, go find someone who does and bring them into the fold and make them a part of your team. And, you know, and that's the thing. People would... I, people would send me articles about people doing theaters in other towns across the country. And it was, I know people always meant well, but, and it was great that other people were doing it. It was exciting. And, but what ends up happening in these situations is they're so specific to the site, to the, where the building is. That's what's so key. Because if you have a 3000 seat auditorium in a, you know, in a place where the, the town's hollowed out and there's no one around, there's nothing you can do there. It's it's sad, but it's realistic. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue the interview with Matt Schultz, executive director of the historic Lansdowne Theater Corporation. And we're back with Matt Schultz. Matt, one of the things that I noticed in reading about this is that there have been certain things like the seats, for example, that you you were basically like, okay, we're going to have to redo the seats. Or there were parts of the curtain that you were sort of hoping would be saved. And now you're like, okay, we're going to remake this. How do you balance the desire for historic authenticity with practicality when you're doing things like that? It's hard. It's very hard. It's sad, you know, when you have to take out the seats that have been there since 1927 but you can't it's hard to get parts for them anymore and it just it's it's cheaper to buy a seat that looks just like the 1927 seat that you can get parts going forward to repair them you have to make that decision at the land it was actually a little bit easier because there were multiple types of seats that got replaced over the years so we didn't have enough seats to fill the whole house so it made sense for us to to take them all out but the the theater curtain you know, when we initially looked at it, we thought, oh, you could take that down, clean it, put a new backing on it, and you'd be fine. But when you real when we took it down and really looked at it, the, the curtain had just been so beaten up for you know close to 100 years. 
that it just it just wasn't possible. So what we did was we hired a company that will manufacture the curtain that will that will try to match the color as closely as possible. And that, uh, if you remember, the curtain had a lot of an embroidery in it, elaborate embroidery with beads and things like that. And one of the things that I challenged the curtain company was, how are you going, could you cut out that embroidered area and sew it to the curtain? And they looked at it and they said, it just would be too complicated. We couldn't do it. But they said, we can, the way that we do this today is we can paint those appliques that you had on the curtains in 27, we can paint them on the curtain and from the audience, you won't be able to tell the difference. So that's the kind of thing. So we, when people come back in the theater, if they look carefully, it won't be the same curtain. If they just give a, at a glance quickly, it'll look just like it did in 27. So there's those kinds of things. Luckily, the building had a lot of the original elements in it, like the, all of the lighting fixtures, including the grand chandelier. They're all they we took them all down and they're with a conservator who actually just spent an hour and a half on the phone with him yesterday. They're with him and he is doing all kinds of tests to determine what the original finishes were on the, the chandelier and, and the smaller historic lighting fixtures around. And what we found was that they all matched, they were all made from basically the same material. Uh and we're going to restore them back to that original material, redo all the wiring. But when we rewired, it'll be rewired with LED lights. It'll be the warm LED lights, so that you'll and they'll be dimmable. So we're doing things like that. We're incorporating new technologies like LED technology into lighting fixtures that are historic that we're going to restore back to the historic finishes. The, the thing that's in, going to be interesting was I went to that theater in the late 1960s and the early 70s. So I have this image from when I was a kid as to what it looks like, and everyone who came through the door, the same thing. But that theater went through multiple changes over the years. So every everyone who came through has a different impression of that building. So what we're doing is we're bringing it back to an earlier period to when we've sort of set the date. It's probably the early 1930s is what we're setting it back to. So the finishes are going to be are on the lighting fixtures as well as the painted ceiling and walls and things. They're going to look like the fixtures did in the 1930s, which are not, well, they'll, they'll be recognizable to people, but they'll say, ah, it wasn't painted that color when I came here. You're right. It wasn't painted that color because somebody in the 1950s decided that the finish was tarnished and they were just going to throw a can of gold paint on it. So what we're doing is we're undoing a lot of those modifications that people um, brought to the buildings over the years and things that you talked earlier about how the owners in the 1980s repainted the ceiling using house paint. We're undoing a lot of the stuff that they did to an earlier period. So that's going to look different to people, but that's going to be... Um, it's historically appropriate, and I think it's really going to create, in, in totality, a really stunning space that we haven't really seen probably since before World War II. I just think that's so fascinating how people restore spaces because there are things like wiring and plumbing and HVAC systems and things like that that you have to update if the seats, you can't get parts for them anymore, or the uh, curtain is in such a state that you're not able to actually restore it. First of all, I think it's very commendable, your your commitment to honoring what was there before. But then it really requires some creative problem solving to figure out how to 
replicate that when technology has changed so much. I was watching the video that you had of them lowering the chandelier, by the way, and it's like, oh gosh, I bet Matt was sweating buckets when that actually, happened. I was actually, I was on vacation. That would be, I, I wasn't there that day. I saw the video later on, but I talked to the guys who lowered it and, and they were very, very concerned it was come correct, but it was going to come crashing to the floor. And it didn't. And one thing I want, I do want to point out the seats that we took out, the company that made those seats in 1927 is still around and they still had the casting pattern for the ends of the seats. And that's what grabs people's eyes are the ends of the seats. So those the replacement seats are going to look just like the ones that we took out. They're not going to be the originals, but they're going to look just like it and they'll function. And if you look on Save the Lansdowne Theater on Facebook, we have a photo of the seats because we're running a campaign right now that if people want to put their name on a seat and sponsor a seat, they can do that. So there's photos up there. And then what we'll do is we're saving that money, putting in a sinking fund because we know that in 20 or 30 years, we're going to need to replace those seats again. So we're starting to save up now because they're not inexpensive. In the process of restoring the building, I know you've made a lot of uh, sort of fun discoveries. And two of the ones that stuck out to me from the chronicling that you've done on it on the Save the Lansdowne Facebook page is two of the stories that I thought were really kind of fascinating in that, where you were talking about the holes in the screen and also the mystery of the gravel on the floor. Uh, would you be able to tell us anything about those? Sure. Um, when we bought the building, we finally had the building to ourselves. We went in there and there were the screen, CinemaScope screen was still sitting on the stage and it had the actual screen. It wasn't just the frame that we had for so many years. So it had the, had the screen there, but we couldn't figure out why are there were these random holes in the screen, like big two-inch holes. We couldn't figure out why they were there until we realized there were golf balls behind the screen throughout the theater. And then we found some drivers. And what we think were happening when the building was empty there were kids, and we're assuming there were kids, were coming in and teeing off from the lobby and driving golf balls through the screen. And that's what caused those, those holes in the screen. So we're not going to be doing that anymore. So I don't know what we did with the, I don't know what we did with the drivers. We probably threw them out. Um, and the other thing was, whenever I come into the building, and every once in a while I look down on the floor and I find this black gravel that looked like dried up macadam, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from like and then looking around and looking up the ceiling and couldn't figure out what it was and then just recently when we started working on the roof upstairs what we found was the pitch that building gutters a certain way that they the builders um build up underneath the so there's a like the copper gutter. So to pitch it, to put one end up higher than the other, they sort of filled underneath these gutters with all kinds of junk. There was wood, but then there was stone, and then there was this gravel. And I don't know if the wind was coming by and blew the gravel through an opening in the roof, or it rained and it washed out, but needless to say, all that gravel on the roof is now gone. We're going to we're going to be building a much more elaborate, a new guttering system on the roof that will uh, function just like the original one. But we're not going to put gravel up there anymore. We can we we're using modern materials to keep the building dry. Well, I would 
hate to go through an interview like this and not ask it, even though it's it's a bit of a silly question, but the Lansdowne Theater was featured in a number of, of films and things like that. But the one that everybody knows is Silver Linings Playbook. And if you've seen the movie, there's a part where Jennifer Lawrence kind of picks a fight with Bradley Cooper outside of a theater, and that is the Lansdowne. So can you tell me a little bit, like, how did you find out that they had chosen the Lansdowne Theater for that? What was What was that like? David O. Russell, who was the director of that, he had set up sort of a, like a camp, a, a location, not uh, about a mile, mile and a half from the theater. And what I was told was they were looking for a place that Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper could have a public confrontation. And they happened to just drive by the movie theater one day. And he loved the look of the movie theater. So he got one of his site location scouts to reach out to us. And it turns out I knew the site location scout's cousin. So the cousin called me, then this guy called me. And they said, could we come out and take a look? And they came out and they we started to negotiate. And they said that they wanted to shoot the scene in front of the theater, but they wanted things like the marquee to be lit and some other things. So the marquee hadn't been lit in decades. So the production company actually came out and temporarily relit the marquee and put posters in the poster cases, painted some things. And then they went to our tenants that were in the retail spaces on the first floor. And one side was for the holding of the extras. So they rented that space. The other side was for the production team. And then Jennifer Lawrence, when they would, between takes, they would take Bradley Cooper off in a in a, in a car to a trailer. And it's one of the neighborhoods. So there could be private, but Jennifer Lawrence came into the coffee shop and I, was just hanging around in case I was needed with a problem in the building. And I just saw this young woman sitting there, it was Jennifer Lawrence, and she just looked forlorn because no one was talking to her. And I just thought, well, you know, this is my place. I'm going to sit down. I'm just going to make her feel welcome. So I ended up sitting with Jennifer Lawrence on the, the downtime during that shoot that night and talking to her just about the theater and what the weather and whatever. But it was a lot of fun. And um, she was very nice. And it was great to see the Lansdowne on the on the big screen. It was really sort of weird because the Lansdowne movie theater was closed, but it was appearing in a movie, uh, right? Sort of backwards. But it was really uh, that was a good experience. And then we ended up in a film called The Dying of the Light, which is a documentary shot by a guy named Peter Flynn, who's a professor at Emerson College, and he has gone around to movie theaters all over the country, documenting the end of film exhibition moving into digital projection. So. Peter came into the Lansdowne and uh, did part of his documentary there. And I got to, it, it was an award-winning documentary that showed at the New York City Documentary Film Fest. So I got to go up to New York and again, see the Lansdowne. And the Lansdowne's appeared in a number of television commercials. So it does pop up and every once in a while on our Facebook page, we, we run those ads. And it's fun to see the Lansdowne. Again, we come back to the idea of people having different takes on the building. And uh, it's always so much fun to see other people's takes on something that to me is so a part of my life and I see it every day, but to see other people's takes and interests in the building is really a lot of fun. Very rewarding to, to see that. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with me and, and share the journey that you've had with this and that the Lansdowne has had. I really appreciate that. And again, I think it's highly commendable and frankly amazing the amount of work that you and all the other people that have been contributing to this have accomplished. Is there anywhere that you'd like to direct people who are interested in learning more about this, donating to the cause, helping out in any way? Where would you like to point those people to? 
Sure. If you're interested in the project, you can go to our website, which is Lansdowne Theater. And we spell theater, E-R, LansdowneTheater.org. Or as we've talked about multiple times in, in our discussion today, you get Save the Lansdowne Theater on Facebook. And I, I will say the Facebook page is updated on a weekly basis. And um, I'm trying to update people on specific construction stuff. So it may get a little detailed every week, but it seems like people are really enjoying us explain exactly why we're what we're doing, why we're doing, and what the end result's going to be. So take a look at those spots. But I hope that when we open next fall and going forward after the fall, that people will come and see concerts at the theaters because I think for the Philadelphia region, this is really going to be a unique space. You know, you come to see your favorite musician, but the added value of going into a really special space is going to hopefully create a lot of memories, just like it created memories from 1927 to 87 for people going to Lansdowne Movie Theater, that it'll create memories of seeing your favorite musician at the Lansdowne with your friends, family, kids, whatever. It'd just be great to see. And I, I want to come back to Abandoned America and how really crucial your the financial support was, but also the emotional support and interest of the hundreds of photographers that you brought through. And I hope that those photographers... Um, come back to the the theater and that that they feel because they've taken they saw it beforehand that we've done a good job of preserving what was there and and honoring the past in the theater and that it's a great place to see a concert. No, oh, thank you again. And and yeah, I mean I, I feel like people absolutely love coming out there and they're going to love coming and seeing it when it reopens as well. And I always try and point out that when people are doing really cool things or you have a place that you really love that's in your community or something that's really special, like the Lansdowne Theater, it is so important for people to support it and for them to patronize those businesses and donate to the causes and do what they can to help because that's really how these places continue to exist. And I would definitely say, I mean, you've been so instrumental in this, as you've pointed out many times, there were so many people that were involved in this project overall. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, you feel that the, the workshops that I did and the people that came were a part of that and that they helped out. That really means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do. And, um, I, I've really enjoyed working with you and, and uh, it, it's been, it's been quite a ride and there's been a lot of people long for the ride. And I'm glad that maybe that the ride continues beyond next fall. Well, that's it for the second season of the Abandoned America podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to support the creation of more episodes of the show, as well as the addition of photo galleries and histories to my Abandoned America website, you can join my Patreon. The link is in the show description. I do giveaways of prints and other goodies there, and those are open to members of the free tiers, too. I also want to remind you that in the links in the show details, you can also sign up for my mailing list to get notifications when new podcasts and galleries are created. And of course, I hope you'll go visit the Abandoned America website to check out photos of the Lansdowne Theater before the restoration work began. I'll also have links in the description to the Facebook page and the website for the historic Lansdowne Theater restoration project, so you can follow along with Matt Schultz and get updates on where they're at in the process, which is a lot of fun. Lastly, if you like the podcast, I hope you'll review it positively and follow it on the platform of your choice. That really does help it get out there. With that, I bid you farewell for the moment, and I'll be back with more episodes in Season 3 shortly, covering all sorts of odd topics that tie into abandoned places. 
A few that I can tell you about now include an interview with one of the stars of the only urban exploration television show that I know of at least, and the story of an asylum superintendent who surgically disassembled his patients. We'll also do a deep dive into the history of papermaking through the lens of a massive defunct paper mill and talk with the author of a book about the rewilding of decaying urban spaces. I hope you'll join me for those when the season airs, and I appreciate you taking the time to give this one a go. As always, I'm your host, Matthew Christopher, and you've been listening to Abandoned America. Abandoned America.